Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 50 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today, we're asking the question, what are some helpful things to say to people who are suffering or going through grief? Well, all of the pundits said it couldn't be done. The doubters were out in droves. The odds were 3,720 to 1 against, but somehow, someway... We've made it to episode number 50 of the Daily Bible Reading Podcast. If you've been here from the beginning, pat yourself on the back, but don't get too carried away because we've got some great Bible reading and Bible talking to do today. I want to point you to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. That's BibleReadingPodcast.com. Today's episode number 50 and every day's episode has a written transcript and verses and quotes and links to what we're talking about and you can find it all at BibleReadingPodcast.com. I also want to ask or beg or plead with you to leave a review on iTunes or whatever other podcasting app you use if it allows reviews and to share the show on Facebook. As I try to say a lot, our goal is to get people to join along with us with this daily journey of Bible reading, Bible study, Bible questions, and Bible discussion. And it doesn't matter when you pick it up. You can pick it up in any point of the year. So share the show, let people know about it, talk about it, all that kind of great stuff. If it's a blessing to you, Maybe it'll be encouragement for other people, too. Today's passages include Exodus chapter 2, which introduces us to Moses, one of the most important people in the entire Bible. We will also read Luke chapter 5, in which Jesus calls his 12 disciples, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in which Paul gives an incredibly strong warning to Christians about sexual immorality. Now let me pause there for just a second, because we're going to read the New Testament twice. 1 Corinthians 6 is a very controversial and very important passage, and the next time through, we're going to spend quite a bit of time in it. We're going to spend our our day-to-day focused mostly on suffering, but I want to get you ready for the next time we go through the New Testament, when we're going to talk about some fairly controversial issues, including the kind of things that Paul warns us about in 1 Corinthians 6, things that we consider sort of private, and maybe we don't want to hear about these. But in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives us lots of challenges about sexual immorality. And here's what I want you to think as you listen to the Word of God. The most important question, maybe it's the second most important question, one of the most important questions that we need to answer when we come to the Word of God is this. Does God, through His Word, the Bible, have the right to tell us how to live our lives. I'm going to say it one more time because it's really, really important that you understand this. Here's the question. Do you believe that God, through his word, the Bible, has the right to tell us how to live our lives? If the answer is yes, then we follow what he says in the word of God, whether we like it or not, whether it fits with our individual desires or not or whether it goes with the culture and what's popular or not? If the answer is no, my question to you is this. Can you really be a Christian and in any way, shape, or form a follower of Jesus if your answer to the question of does God have the right to tell you how to live your life through his word 
if the answer to that question is no. Because if the answer to that question is no, then my question to you, of course, is who does have the right to tell you how to live your life? And if your answer is nobody, then I would say, well, that's fine. Uh, well, it's actually, it's not fine. It's it's saying you're the Lord of your life. And if you're lo- the Lord of your life, um, you can't save yourself. The whole purpose of the Bible and the whole message of the Bible is that God sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross and save us from our sins. And Jesus says to us, if you love me, you will obey my word. And so it's a big, big, big question to grapple with. And I'm, I'm not going to cram it down your throat any more than the Bible does. But I will tell you, that's the big question when you sit down with the Word of God and you hear God commanding you through His Word. Does He have the right to tell you what to do and how you live your life? If the answer is yes, I think that's a strong indication that you're a follower of God. If the answer is no, then I think it's a strong indication that you're a follower of yourself and you can't save you. More on that eventually. Our focus today, though, remains on comforting well those who are suffering, and that means our focus passage for the day is in Job chapter 19, and the very first verses show us how difficult we can make it on our friends who are suffering if we say and do the wrong things around them like Job's friends did. This is what Job has to say in verse 2 and 3. He says to his friends, How long? Will you torment me and crush me with words? You have humiliated me ten times now, and you mistreat me without shame. We do not want to be like Job's friends. We want to help those we love who are going through trials. So today, we're going to discuss some practical ways and some spiritual ways that we can actually comfort people who are grieving or hurting or depressed or lonely or crushed or sad or sick or whatever. So let's read our passage in Job first and then consider how can we can walk with the hurting in a helpful way. Job chapter 19, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Then Job answered, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? You've humiliated me ten times now, and you mistreat me without shame. Even if it is true that I have sinned, my mistake concerns only me. If you really want to appear superior to me and would use my disgrace as evidence against me, understand that it is God who has wronged me and caught me in his net. I cry out violence, but get no response. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass through. He's veiled my paths with darkness. He stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side so that I am ruined. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me, and he regards me as one of his enemies. His troops advance together. They construct a ramp against me and camp around my tent. He's removed my brothers from me. My acquaintances have abandoned me. My relatives stop coming by and my close friends have forgotten me. My house guests and female servants regard me as a stranger. I am a foreigner in their sight. I call for a servant, but he does not answer, even if I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and my own family finds me repulsive. Even young boys scorn me. When I stand up, they mock me. 
All of my best friends despise me, and those I have loved have turned against me. My skin and my flesh cling to my bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, my friends, have mercy. For God's hand has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? I wish that my words were written down, that they were recorded on a scroll, or they were inscribed in stone forever by an iron stylus in lead. But I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the dust. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him, and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. If you say, how will we pursue him, since the root of the problem lies with him? Then be afraid of the sword, because wrath brings punishment by the sword, so that you may know there is a judgment. For whatever reason, when we are suffering, we feel alone, we're isolated, we feel like we're the only one going through it, even if people are trying to reach us and express love to us. Something about going through acute suffering, grief, depression, and pain alienates us from those who aren't going through the same thing. And we can see Job expressing the pain from this dynamic in this chapter when he says, He has removed my brothers from me. My acquaintances have abandoned me. My relatives stop coming by, and my close friends have forgotten me. That's verses 13, 14. Because those people who are suffering, going through grief, depression, etc., often feel alienated and isolated, we who love them must try extra hard and persist in trying for a long time, even past their denials, to communicate clearly our love and our care for our friends. With that in mind, here are three thoughts on what to say to those who are mourning, grieving, or hurting. Thought number one, sometimes you don't have to say anything. We all stumble for words when we are interacting with somebody in extreme grief or pain. They're hurting, and we have a natural and wholesome instinct to try to comfort them and soothe their pain. I suspect that this dynamic is the main reason why we say so many stupid and inaccurate things to people who are mourning. We want to help, and words are failing us, so we just say something. However... It is far better to say nothing than it is to say something harmful or dumb or inaccurate or whatever. Remember yesterday, we talked about the slightly awkward and tall lady at my sister's friend's mom's funeral. That lady didn't have the words to say, so she just mourned with a mourning mother in a genuine and quiet way. Shared suffering is powerful and way more powerful than even the best cliches. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them, and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. When we join with people like that, we express a kind of kindness and solidarity with them that words fail to express. So you don't always have to say something. Second thing to remember, the word of God is comforting. While I think it is wise to avoid merely quoting a Bible verse to somebody who is suffering, 
Yes, the Word of God is living, active, and powerful, but treating it like sort of a Band-Aid or a Tylenol or something like that sort of cheapens it somehow. I believe it is powerful to share Scripture with those who are suffering, but not in a drive-by sort of way, that you're going to drop a Bible verse on them and then drive on away and go about your happy life. I'm You should share Scripture but in the context of demonstrating love through time and your presence. In the midst of that, a powerful scripture like Revelation 21 is really comforting and helpful. The truth that one day God will wipe away every tear is a precious truth. This The truth that some people will be crying right up until the point of Jesus' second coming and triumphing, triumphant victory is a sobering reality. So Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. So yes, we should comfort people with Scripture. But again, not in a sort of, Oh, hey, you're going through a hard time? Well, here's what the Bible says. Oh, see you later. Hope you feel better. That's not really a comfort. Or at least it's not as strong of a comfort as it could be. Final thought. Persist and remember those who have suffered loss even after a lot of time has passed. Grief is a very, very lonely process and a lonely emotion and it drags out and it rears its head after a time when you think it's gone. When you're suffering the grief of the death of a loved one or something horrible you've gone through, it often feels like nobody else in the entire world has suffered quite like you're suffering. And that grief lasts a while. Most friends of people who are mourning will, after a certain amount of time, attempt to bring their relationship with the mourner back to a more normal place. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but as Christians... We do grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We grieve. It's okay to grieve. It's good to grieve. But we grieve with hope, knowing that God one day will wipe every tear from our eyes. That said, we still grieve. And we remember those whom we have lost. As the friend of somebody in mourning, do them the kindness of remembering their loved one and remembering that they are probably still in pain. It might be easier to never bring up the departed loved one. Perhaps you're thinking, well, I don't want to get them crying again or make them feel bad. But avoid that temptation. Remember them vocally, and continue to comfort your friend weeks, months, and even years after this loss. I want to close this part of the podcast with two really powerful thoughts on death and mourning from two people whose lives were deeply touched by it, George Mueller and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mueller lost his wife. He was a preacher. He founded orphanages. He was a missionary. He was a mighty man of God. And he saw his wife died. And this is what he wrote shortly after that. He says, the last portion of scripture, which I read to my precious wife was this. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now, if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, says Mueller, we have received grace. We are partakers of grace, and to all such he will give glory also. 
I said to myself with regard to that latter part, No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I've been saved by the blood of Christ, and I don't live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she's not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I have often said before, from taking God at his word and believing what he says. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who resisted Hitler in the rise of the Nazis, a decision which ultimately led to him being executed. He wrote these words while he was facing death. Why are we so afraid when we think about death? Death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible if only we can be still and hold fast to God's word. Death is not bitter if we have not become bitter ourselves. Death is grace, the greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him. Death is mild. Death is sweet and gentle. It beckons to us with heavenly power if only we realize that it is the gateway to our homeland. Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that is just what is so marvelous that we can, by our faith in Christ, transform death. Now, I'm not sure I'm ready to go all the way with Bonhoeffer there. I'm not sure I'm ready to agree that death is mild and gentle and sweet. But when we realize the hope of the resurrection of Jesus, then we will say a hearty amen when Bonhoeffer tells us that death is the gateway to our homeland. It's that gateway for all who have believed in faith and the sacrifice of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So if people have gone on and left us behind and they've died, even if their death was horrible and full of suffering, and it's breaking our hearts and we're overwhelmed by grief, if they were in Christ, we do have the hope, and it's a sure and certain hope, that they have gone on to their homeland, that they are with Jesus, that they are walking in the glorious reality of what we can only imagine. And that's good, but it doesn't keep us from grieving, and it's not supposed to. We merely, as Christians, grieve with hope. And if you're going through grief right now, my dear brother or sister, I just say to you, cling to the word of God and may it give you hope. If you have friends going through hard times, suffering, grief, etc., cling to them and love on them. Share the word with them. Share yourself with them and be a good friend for them. Exodus chapter 2 verse 1. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeves, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, This is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? 
go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, Why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied. Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, What I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove him away, but Moses came to their drove them away, but Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father Reuel, he asked, Why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? he asked his daughters. Why did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake, and the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, "'Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch.'" Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but if you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, get away from me, because I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all of those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. While he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had leprosy all over him. He saw Jesus, fell face down, and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing. Be made clean. 
and immediately the leprosy left him. Then he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But the news about him spread even more, and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. On one of those days while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and also from Jerusalem, and the Lord's power to heal was on him. Just then some men came, carrying a man on a stretcher who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him, since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd. They actually went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded. They were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe and said, We have seen incredible things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So everything, he left everything behind. He got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with him. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and uh, sinners? Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples often fast and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And so no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill, and the skins will be ruined. No, New wine is put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, wants new because he says the old is better. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 If any one of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more of this, uh, more matters of this life? So, if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. 
Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers? As it is, have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like that. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So, should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Amen, brothers and sisters. Let us take heed of that and indeed glorify God with our body. Godspeed to you.